Now, most of you know, I was born in the Los Angeles area. I was raised there. And so I learned to drive in California. And you may not know it, but they drive differently in California than what we drive in Pennsylvania. If you've never driven there, uh, it is quite startling. There are far more aggressive drivers there. In fact, during the time that I was there this summer, I did uh, things on the road that caused some people to be upset with me. I mean, here we let people merge into traffic and uh, or we let left turns go in front of us and there it's a test of your manhood to make sure that that doesn't happen, you know. And, um, well, uh, so I upset some people driving in California like I drive in Pennsylvania. And it was really, really sad. Several people apparently had experienced deforming injuries because when they waved at me, they seemed to only have one finger. It, it was an amazing thing. And um, I'm pretty sure that I heard more horns honk and I was flipped off more in the few weeks I was in California this summer than I have been in the uh, little over nine years that I have lived here. Although my wife told me after last night's service that she was flipped off in a parking lot this week by a very elderly woman. <laughs> now, my wife, who is beautiful and young, when she says elderly... That must be elderly. Anyway, when people get angry on the road, we call it road rage. It happens most commonly today when someone is paying attention to their phone instead of paying attention to the road. It happens when someone changes lanes without using their turn signal or when they're driving slow in the passing lane. And uh, it happens in other situations too. Did you know there's a website called roadragers.com and it gives some interesting statistics. It says 70% of Americans admit they often tailgate someone to try to get them to go faster. 71% of, of Americans will use their horn to get someone in front of them to get out of the way. And 77% of Americans will engage in obscene gestures. But that statistic doesn't hold true if you are female. The same study claims 80% of females will engage in obscene gestures. I don't know if that's true or not, but as your pastor, I need to tell you, when you wave at people, be sure that you use all five fingers. If you don't, it could be a very dangerous thing. In fact, in a newspaper near Salt Lake City, it reported a story of two drivers that got into a little scuffle. The headline read, Road Raid Bullet Hits Tip of Raised Finger. Apparently, a 25-year-old male was sitting at a stop sign or a stoplight at 12:40 a.m. when a woman pulled up right beside him and the light turned green and both of them wanted to enter Interstate 15. And she was driving aggressively, so he started driving aggressively and she yelled something out the window and he gave her a one-finger salute and she pulled out a gun and fired four <laughs> shots into his car. One of them, no lie, hitting his middle finger. Now, I'm betting that the next time he gets upset on the road, well, maybe he won't be able to no matter what, but he won't even if he could. 
So don't do that. It could be dangerous. Now, isn't it interesting how anger can take something as small as a light turning from red to green and can escalate into someone pulling a gun and firing bullets? I mean, cops are involved. Car chases are involved. People are going to prison. Yet it happens to varying degrees all the time. It happens in families, in homes, and workplaces. Anger erupts and cause all, causes all kinds of damage. Anger, rage, malice, and bitterness have infected our hearts and our homes. And statistics say one quarter of marriages experience domestic violence in some form. And I think the actual number is probably much higher because of the unreported cases. And even couples who have never experienced physical violence know what it's like to cling to their corner of the mattress with tears in their eyes and hurt in their heart as a result of conflict and anger. We see it in other relationships too. People who used to be friends are now estranged because of some misunderstanding and family members don't talk to each other for years because of some past hurtful conflict. And all around us, we see the results of conflict and anger. And James is going to deal with this subject too as he helps us to develop a winning faith. We're nearly finished with our series uh, from the letter that Jesus's brother wrote. And I'm praying that these messages have been helpful to you, that they've challenged you, that they've caused you to struggle a little bit with how you're going to make your faith better. I'm praying that you've accepted the challenge to take the actions that we have been identifying and move past life as usual and accept the challenge to live all out for Jesus with a real relationship that's successful, with a faith that is a winning part of your life. But James begins chapter 4 with a question. Here's his simple question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It's a very important question. So let's take some time right now to answer it. What causes our conflicts? Now, one of our local television stations reported several years ago why couples in Pittsburgh fight, quoting a survey uh, on what causes marital stress, they concluded increased marital interaction or negative interaction, that's a nice word for argument, negative interaction, uh, occurred as a result of the following. It said 53% of couples said heavy traffic caused their marital strife. 25% said a stealer's loss created conflict in their marriage. I'm seeing elbows fly all over the room on that one. And 20% said bad weather. Now, I'm sure that we could read many different studies and surveys, and I think most of them would come up with at least some of the reasons that James gave to us centuries ago. In chapter 4, he gives at least four reasons why people fight. Let's walk through them. The first cause he lists is our selfishness. Our selfishness. Let me read you a quote. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch, 
deny him these once, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is dirty, he has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, or a rapist. Wow. It's pretty cynical, isn't it? Or is it just scary? How does it make you feel to listen to something like that? Does it make it better or worse when I tell you that that was, that was a report that was produced in 1926? 1926 by the Minnesota Crime Commission. It reported on the growth of crime and uh, it reached startling conclusions. Now, how, does that sound out of date to you? I see basically what it's saying is each and every one of us from the time we were born tend to be selfish. We tend to be selfish. We work hard to hide it. We might work to overcome it, but we are all selfish people. And James says our selfishness is why we fight. Look at what he says in the first three verses of chapter four. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. We have these desires battling within us. We want what we want and we want it now. This battle happens in my house most Mondays. It's my day off usually. And uh, I usually have a picture of what it should be like. I picture sleeping in, going out for a nice leisurely breakfast with my wife, maybe taking a nice drive somewhere beautiful, and then maybe sitting in my recliner in front of the TV or sitting out on the deck and reading a book, maybe taking a little nap. That's my picture. That's not Jill's picture. Oh, she likes that sleeping in part. And she's okay with breakfast out and maybe even a nap at some point in the day. But the rest of the day, she wants to accomplish something. She wants to accomplish something. You know, she wants us to work together to clean something or to do yard work or to fix something or to run errands. So who wins? Usually neither one of us. I mean, we usually end up accomplishing more than I want to and less than she wants to. You know, we've tried hard not to make it a big conflict or a big deal and uh, we've both learned to curb our own desires and to give in to each other. Sometimes, though, little things like this result in big conflicts. I have counseled couples who have had huge fights because one person just demands their own way, whether they're choosing a restaurant or talking about how to raise their kids. And I've seen churches split because a group of people insist on having their own way. And as James says, when we can't have what we want, we kill and we covet and we quarrel and 
we fight and we don't ask God if it's a right desire or if he will provide it for us, we just start arguing and fighting. And verses 2 and 3 contain some of the saddest words in all of Scripture. Let me read it to you again. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. Did you catch what he's saying there? We don't pray enough. We don't ask God enough. We, we don't trust God enough. But even when we do pray, our prayers are selfish. Our prayers are selfish. So selfishness is the first cause of our conflict. The second is our unfaithfulness. It's our unfaithfulness. Look at what James says in verses 4 and 5. You adulterous people... Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? James isn't pulling any punches here. First, he says that we're selfish. And then he calls us adulterous people. Now, we usually associate adultery with sexual sin. Adultery is when a person breaks their vow of faithfulness to their spouse. They have promised to give themselves fully and uh, only to their spouse, but then they get involved with someone else, either in person or in pictures or on the internet. And we usually don't call it adultery until something sexual occurs, but disloyalty and unfaithfulness have begun long long before that. And James in this passage is reminding us of the vows we made to God. He's reminding us of our vow to God and our relationship with him. And I remember the day that I made that vow. I was nine years old and I had gone forward at a Christian camp on Friday night and I had declared my faith in Jesus and my commitment to him. And on the following Sunday morning, I stepped into the baptistry and my dad said some words, and my dad dipped me underwater, and I understood at nine years old exactly what I was saying symbolically to Jesus that day. I understood that I was saying, I die to my sin. I die to who I am. I die to what I want, and I promise to live for you. I promise to do it your way. I promise to live only for you. You see, baptism is the believer's wedding ceremony. It's uh, the part of the process where I accept and celebrate God's promise to save me through Jesus and where I commit myself to living for him and doing my best to do things his way for the rest of my life. That's the promise I made that day. And I'm sorry to say I haven't always kept that promise. I've not always done a good job of keeping that promise, and that's why I'm so thankful that Jesus died once and for all to forgive all of our sins when we've trusted in him. But I still want every day to keep the promises that I made to Jesus. I want to be faithful to my vow. And James points out that when I allow myself to be sucked in by the world and I become friendly or I begin flirting with the world, that... I'm disloyal to God. I'm unfaithful to him that I've committed spiritual adultery. And James is clear, we can't have it both ways. Trying to be friends with the world and worldly ways makes us enemies of God. 
And trying to have it both ways, to be friends with God and flirting with the ways of the world will cause all sorts of conflict in our life. We don't have long to talk about it, but notice the compliment that the passage gives to you. I really think it is a compliment. Verse 5 says this, Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? You know what that says? That says God loves you so much, he's jealous. He's jealous when you flirt or when you're unfaithful to him. He wants to hold on to you. He wants to protect his relationship with you. He's jealous when you start flirting with the world. I think that's so cool that he loves us that much. We have to move on. The third reason that we fight is our words, our words. Look at verses 11 and 12. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? We talked some about this last week, so we won't spend much time here today, but slandering each other, speaking against each other, and judging each other's salvation is just out-and-out sin. The passage asks, who are you to judge your neighbor? Yet we do it all the time. We decide that their sins are worse than our own, that their priorities are less important than our own, that their relationship with God is less valid if it didn't go down the exact same path and process that God used in our life. And we judge certain sins as more scandalous and certain needs as less worthy and certain people as less deserving of our time. And uh, clearly, unfairly judging each other and talking trash about each other or to each other is the reason that we fight. Let's look at one last reason that we fight, and that's our pride. Our pride. Look at verses 13 through 16. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. We will, uh, why, I'm sorry, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. We tend to think that we're way more important than what we really are. We think that we are vital and necessary in our world, kind of like an oxygen tank is necessary for the life of a scuba diver. And we think that the people in our world at work or at home or at church would just really struggle to get by without us. And we really do think that we own the world sometimes. We act as if we're indispensable. And we think that the world revolves around us and our plans. And to some degree, that isn't completely our fault. To some degree, it's our parents' and our grandparents' fault because they've taught us this. They give us their attention and they give us their praise and they begin to tell us and we begin to believe that we're better than we are, that we deserve more than what we really deserve, that we can accomplish more than we should even try to accomplish. And have you ever 
been truly hurt when someone else around you got attention that you think you should have gotten? I have. I mean, there are times when I thought my idea was better or that my skill was better and someone else got the attention or got the credit and that was sinful pride. Even if I was right. Even if my skill was better or my idea was better, it's sinful pride. And Have you ever thought that you could do the job better than your boss or that you could run a meeting better than your manager or organize an event better than your friend or that your lasagna or apple pie is better than someone else's when you think that even if you're right it's sinful pride it's sinful pride whenever we think that the world or even god is better off because of our contribution it's just sinful pride and it's a misunderstanding of who we are look at what the verses say about us what is your life you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I'm not an oxygen tank. I'm just a mist. If you want to know what your life is like, go outside on a really cold day and exhale. And when you see your breath floating out in front of you, think, that's my life in God's eyes. That's my life in God's eyes. Now, don't get me wrong. Your life is valuable to God. It's very valuable to God. He wants to use you to serve him fully, to make a difference in this world and uh, in the lives of people around you. He wants you to help them reach up to God. And he wants you to reach out to others who are in need. And he wants you to reach in for spiritual growth and help other people to do that. And you are loved by God and you are valuable to him. But your life is like this. (sighs) And then it's gone. It's just a mist. It's here for a little while and then it vanishes. And our pride causes so many problems because people around us fail to acknowledge our importance at the level we believe that we're important. And we fail to acknowledge their importance at the level that they believe that they're important. And that creates all sorts of competition. That creates all kinds of conflict and problem. So, okay, we've seen four reasons why we fight. Let's spend the rest of our time talking about how we can resolve conflicts. How can we resolve conflicts? Now, notice I don't have a long list here. That's because James calls us to make two decisions that will help us to resolve conflict. And these decisions are found in some of the verses that we skipped over. And the first is decide to become humbly submissive. Decide to become humbly submissive. Look at verses 4 through 10 in chapter 4. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now James does something really interesting here. He talks about us being humble in verses 6 and in verse 10 at the beginning and the end of the passage we read. But then in verses 7 through 10 he gives us 10 instructions that are in command form. 
And the fact that they're in command form means that they're not optional for us if we claim that Jesus is the leader of our life. The fact that they're in command form means that they are directives or orders that we are given by our leader. So let me list them. We are commanded to submit ourselves to God. We are committed to resist, or commanded to resist the devil. We are commanded to come near to God. We are commanded to wash our hands. We're commanded to purify our hearts. We're commanded to grieve, to mourn, to wail, to change laughter to mourning and joy to gloom, and then to humble yourselves before the Lord. You see, I gave four causes of conflict, but they can all be summed up with just the words rebellious pride. Rebellious pride. And that, by the way, is the opposite of humble submission. Each of the causes we listed involve us trying to replace God or trying to do it all ourselves to get our own way selfishness is where we want what we want and we don't ask God and we think we know best and we do whatever we can to get our own way and unfaithfulness is where we think that the world can give us more than what God has promised to give us and so we push God aside and we chase after the world and sinful words is where we believe that we can take the place of God as the judge of other people and our pride is when we're so confident in ourself and our agenda that we forget that God is in control we forget that we're just a mist And the solution is to obey these Ten Commandments and to humbly submit to him and to the others that he has placed in leadership around us. Humility is when I think rightly about myself. We acknowledge how valuable we are to God, but we also acknowledge how limited we are to do the right things in our lives. And submission is when we think the right thoughts about God. We acknowledge that he is in control of my life and that following him means that I need to obey him and submit to him. And that makes me a servant, not a superstar. It makes me humble, not prideful. It causes me to submit to the authorities God has placed in my life, governing authorities and spiritual authorities and family authorities, children submitting to parents and husbands and wives mutually submitting to each other. And submitting to God... And to, who, and to the people he has asked me to submit to will resolve so many conflicts. It just resolves so many conflicts. But it starts with the decision to humbly submit. And those commands that James gave to us really indicate that to accomplish humble submission, we need repentance. That's what it says. We need to turn away from the devil and turn towards God and We need to seek to deal with our sin, grieving and mourning over how our sin has created conflict. And it isn't easy for us. That's the humble part. But submission starts with repentance. And notice what God does when we humbly submit and repent. Did you catch it? He lifts us up. He gives us more grace. He causes the devil to flee from us. He comes near to us. Humble submission is a hard decision, but it's so worth it. The second decision that will help us resolve our conflict is to decide to become peace-loving. Decide to become peace-loving. James talks about this in verses that we skipped in chapter 3. So if you turn back to chapter 3, look at, we'll start with verse 13. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James says that the lies that we tell ourselves to rationalize continuing a conflict are not heavenly wisdom, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. And if you're wondering right now, if you've been fooled by any of those lies, ask yourself, am I harboring bitter envy? Am I harboring selfish ambition in my heart? Am I continuing a conflict that was caused by one of those four uh, things that we talked about earlier? Today, we want to use God's wisdom, not earthly and demonic wisdom. And that means... um, that we want the kind of wisdom that James talks about, wisdom that is pure and peace-loving and considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and sincere. So we need to decide to become peace-loving. What does that mean? What does it mean to be peace-loving? Well, it means that we love the person more than we care about how they hurt us. We care about the relationship more than the hurt. We show the same mercy that God showed to us. It means that we're impartial. Did that word jump out at you? It's kind of a weird place for it in this passage. But I wonder what it means to be peace-loving and impartial. I think that means that I treat my conflict with you with the same grace, with the same forgiveness that I would give to my wife or my children or my grandchildren in a conflict with them that I'm impartial in my showing of grace and forgiveness but now here's the problem some of you may be struggling with it right there right now because many of us have come to embrace our conflicts many like to talk about their rights they like to talk about what they deserve or what the other person deserves or what they wanted or what the other person had the gall to ask for. They like to talk about their hurt. And when these things happen, we don't love peace. We don't love peace. So today I want you to make the decision. Will you decide to become peace-loving or will you hold on to your hurt? Will you be peace-loving or will you hold on to your hurt? Now, You should have been uh, given a piece of paper like this in your bulletin when you walked in. If you've got that, please take it out right now. I want you to look at it. If you didn't get it, we'll tell you how you can get one in just a few minutes. But I want you to look at this. And if you have trusted Jesus for your salvation, when God looks at your life, this is what he sees. A clean slate. When God looks at you, he doesn't see a list of sins that you've committed He sees a pure and clean slate because instead of seeing you, he sees Jesus. Jesus paid the price for your sin. And so when God looks at you, 
he looks through the filter of Jesus and he sees only a clean and pure life. That's what he sees when he looks at anyone who's trusted him for forgiveness. And um, that's what we celebrate every week when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the fact that even though my life is full of sin, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, God sees me as pure and clean. And we celebrate that moment when we partake. Now, here's what I'm asking you to do today. I want you to look at this piece of paper. Look at the pure and white piece of paper. And I want you to try to see the people that have hurt you the same way that Jesus sees you. I want you to see the sacrifice of Jesus for them instead of their sin. His blood takes away the sin of the world and it takes away the sin of that person whose name you're thinking of right now. If you want a winning faith, you've got to pursue peace. And that starts by deciding to humbly submit to God's desire for you to let go of conflict. Decide that you will be peace-loving. Decide that you will see people who hurt you the way God sees you if you've trusted him, pure and forgiven. Now, I'm gonna invite you to use that piece of paper today to let go of your conflict. That's what we want you to do. And I uh, want you to let go of your conflict and bitterness today. You can write some names on this piece of paper, names of people who you have conflict with, or you can write a little note to God, a prayer to him about forgiving and how hard that is, or you can leave it completely blank as a symbol that that's how you're going to choose to see someone in your life that has hurt you. And as you do this, you're gonna partake of the Lord's Supper. Here's what we're going to do today. We're gonna ask you, no matter what section you're in, to come to the center aisle this aisle right here. So you'll have to come out and around the back. If you don't have a piece of paper, somebody will be waiting at the back of that aisle and uh, they'll be glad to give you a piece of paper. But we want you to come and we want you to discard that conflict at the cross. We've got a trash can on each side so you can literally throw away the conflict that's been holding you back at the foot of the cross as you decide to see the people who have hurt you the way that Jesus sees you, pure and forgiven. And after you discard your conflict, you can go to one of the communion tables. There's several, several trays on them. Go to whichever one's empty and you can take the bread and the cup. You can go back to your seat if you'd like and partake. But let's use this as a defining moment in our lives where we choose to become peace-loving by humbly submitting to God and seeing people the way that he sees us. And if for some reason you're unable or would just rather not come to the front to partake of the Lord's Supper, if you just raise your hand and keep it raised, someone will be there uh, to serve you and uh, that will be a great thing. But right now, let me pray. And then after my prayer, while the music is playing softly, just please come by this center aisle, leave your conflicts at the cross and celebrate what Jesus did for you. Let's pray. Father, it's so hard for us because we've been hurt so badly and it just feels wrong to forgive someone. But Father, we thank you that 
when it felt wrong for you. You let go of your conflict with us. You paid the price through Jesus. And because of that, we are pure and clean. And Father, when we partake, we celebrate your love as we partake of the bread that represents the body of Jesus that hung on that tree for us and the cup that represents his blood that cleanses us and makes us pure. And so, Father, in this moment, we humbly submit to you. We submit our conflict to you. We give it to you and we leave it at the cross as we celebrate your love. In Jesus' name, amen.
Heavenly Father, as we remember your love for us, your forgiveness and grace in our life, as we celebrate the fact that even though we deserve punishment, you have given us love and forgiveness. Father, we ask you to help us. Help us to be loving and forgiving. Help us to be peace-loving. And Father, we humbly submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've made that choice today, and if you've decided to be peace-loving, that may mean you'll need to talk to somebody. You'll need to write a note. You'll need to extend forgiveness or the possibility of a relationship again. And just so you know, the person that you go to might not respond well. They just might not. They might not be as peace-loving and as graceful as you think that they should be, but Scripture says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. And so you do your part. You do what you need to do and uh, let them be responsible for their response and let them deal with that in their relationship with God. But when you try, when we try to be peace-loving, when we humbly submit, God gives us blessings. I like the way the easy-to-read version translates the promise in James chapter 3, verse 18. Here's what it says. People who work for peace in a peaceful way get the blessings that come from right living. People who work for peace in a peaceful way get the blessings that come from right living. May you experience those blessings today as you work for peace in peaceful ways. If you need to talk with somebody or you need someone to pray with you about this, stop by our Next Steps canopy following the service or come find me. We would be glad to assist you in that. But we pray that today will be a day full of peace and love for you. Let's stand together and we're going to sing one last song before we conclude.